The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Well, before we get started this evening, let's uh, have a word of prayer. We need to make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to use 1 John 1.9 if necessary, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather together to study your word, the freedom that we have to do so. We thank you for each one here, their positive volition, their desire to know the word more fully and apply it more consistently in their life. Father, we pray that as we study these things that God the Holy Spirit would bring things out in the text that are important to us, that we'd see how they apply to our own life and our own thinking, that we might be refreshed and encouraged by the study of your word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. A couple of announcements. This Thursday, that's day after tomorrow. Uh, I was coming to Bible class tonight and thought it was Thursday, so, but I am prepared for Genesis. Just an inconsistency in my logic machine. Prep school meeting, 7 o'clock before class Thursday night on June the 1st. Another announcement a couple of people have asked about what's going to happen when I go to Israel. That is not what's going to happen in Israel, but what's going to happen here while a minor, well, shall we say a partial rapture occurs? Those who are spiritual are going to go to the promised land, and those of you who aren't will be left behind. But the first week, Jim, isn't it great how God provides? I was sitting there back in, whenever it was, February or March, thinking, how in the world am I going to come up with somebody to cover six Bible classes? And then I found out that Jim Myers was coming home for a couple of months, and then George Meisinger was going to be in Houston, in Texas for about three weeks. So the first week that I'm gone, Thursday, Sunday, and Tuesday, Jim Myers will cover the pulpit, and the second week we're gone, George Meisinger will cover the pulpit. So nothing like bringing in the big guns to play backup. So that's uh, that will be the, and there will be a couple of other things. I think somebody's planning a luncheon or fellowship dinner or something one of those Sundays so everybody can spend a little time with either George or Jim or both of them. So just pay attention. Now, Jim will be around for a couple of months. He comes in, I think, tomorrow. Then he's going to go spend some time with family. He'll be back next week for a couple of weeks, and then he's off doing some other things, some traveling. Then he'll be back at the end of July. So we're going to see Jim and Phyllis uh, several times throughout the next couple of months. Okay, let's open our Bibles to Genesis 31. Genesis 31, and we're going to see this resolution of the people test that Jacob's been dealing with for 20 years with his family. Seems like everybody can have family problems, whether it's family or whether it's friends or whether it's uh, church family or just co-workers that we have to deal with all the time. We all deal with people testing, and we've gone through several principles on that. 
the last few weeks as backdrop to understand the basic doctrinal principles and mechanics of how to deal with that kind of a test and how those tests work in the Christian life as God is involved in bringing tests into our life to move us from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. Now, the doctrinal center of any test and the doctrinal center of this passage is the faithfulness of God because no matter what we go through, no matter whether it's people testing or circumstances or health testing or financial testing, whatever the arena of testing is, the bottom line is that God is faithful. Even when we don't see what God is doing, even when we don't realize what is happening, even though God may go through a long period of silence in what we've seen in the life of Jacob. Now, this is an individual who has had manifestations from God, and he goes 20 years while he's in the land of Canaan, and it isn't until the end of 20 years that God appeared to him and told him, it's time to go back, I've been with you, I've blessed you, and I'm going to protect you, reminded him of the promise from Genesis uh, 28.15 that he would be with him and prosper him while he was out of the land. So here's a situation where God has been silent in the life of Jacob. It always amazes me how many people think today, I guess this is due to the charismatic influence, that throughout the Old Testament God was appearing to everybody all the time and talking to them all the time. And that just isn't true. The appearances and the revelation of God were sparse, they were rare, and they were specifically related to uh, His plan and purposes for Israel in the Old Testament. Now, Jacob has been faced with this test with his in-laws for the last 20 years, and now God has told him to leave. So in verse 17 we read, Then Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels. Now, as backdrop to this, in the first part of the chapter, we saw that the, his in-laws were now very angry, extremely upset with him because they had lost their flocks and herds had all been diminished and they were blaming him and this was just a sign of how God was bringing a little retribution vengeance is mine incidentally the word there translated vengeance isn't what we think of as vengeance or vindictiveness God is not a vindictive God the Hebrew word for vengeance there is the word for legal retribution not a word for personal vengeance because I've been wrong, now I'm going to get back at you. It is a word that has at its core a legal connotation, and God always operates within this legal framework of his covenant. So God now is going to bring some divine discipline in, and has brought some divine discipline in the life of Laban and the family there because of the way they have maltreated Jacob over the, over the years and have deceived him. And so Jacob's response is to call Rachel and Leah and take them aside, explain what's going on. He explains his justification for his behavior over the last few years and that he is in the right, Laban is in the wrong. They clearly align themselves with him. They know what a, a rotten, no-good cheat their father is. And so now they're ready to leave. We read in verse 17 that Jacob rose and set his sons and his wives on camels. This section from 17 down to 21 explains the circumstances of the flight, and there's a certain amount of repetition here so that we get the point. 
He carried away all of his livestock and all his possessions which he had gained, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Padan Aram to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. Now you'll notice that I've highlighted this because the text is emphasizing that that Jacob has legitimately acquired these possessions. He has not stolen these the, the, the flocks and the herds. He's from, from Laban. He isn't a thief. He has uh, acquired them through the blessing of God. Verse 19, Now Laban had gone to shear his sheep, and Rachel had stolen the household idols. Now there is a play on words throughout the text with this Hebrew verb ganav, G-A-N-A-V, that uh, is the word for theft. Rachel had stolen the household idols that were her father's, and Jacob stole away. Same words used in both places, but with a different nuance, different connotation. Jacob stole away unknown to Laban the Syrian, in that he did not tell him that he intended to flee. So he fled with all that he had. He arose and crossed the river and headed towards the mountains of Gilead. Now, before we go back and make some observations on those few verses, I want to put a map up here to show you what's been going on here. In this map, we see that up in this this area here where the arrow is, is Padan Aram. This is the area where Laban lives. Down here in this area to the south uh, southwest is the land of Canaan. There's about 400 miles, four to 500 miles from Canaan up to the area in Padan Aram and Haran, where Jacob has been living for the last 20 years. Just to orient you to a modern map, this area here to the northwest is modern Turkey. This area to the southeast is the area of modern Iraq. Right here is Nineveh, which is in the northern part of modern Iraq, and just about here is, down in this area here, is modern, modern Baghdad. So that orients you to this this whole map. Incidentally, this little black triangle right here is the location of Mount Ararat where Noah landed uh, with the ark. So that gives you a, a framework. This is the Caspian Sea off to the northeast, and this little blue body of water right here to the north of Turkey is uh, the Black Sea. So this is where they are. Now, here's a little bit of a close-up where Padanaram is just up here in the top corner of the map, and this green line here traces Jacob's route as he's going to head south down to the mountains of Gilead. Uh, here at the edge of the pointer here is Ramoth Gilead, and the, the hill country here on the uh, east side of the Jordan, the Transjordan, is the area referred to as the hills of Gilead or the mountains of Gilead in this particular text. Let's see if I have a... Uh, there's a different map showing the same route, and on this map we have the region of Gilead uh, located here. So th- we'll go over these maps a couple more times as we go through the next couple of, couple of chapters. Okay, so verses 17 and 18 summarize the events of the flight. Jacob is focusing on his family. This is his priority. He sets his sons and his wives on camels. Camels were the uh, rapid transit system of the ancient world. 
uh, anything else went a lot slower so they could make the fastest time on a camel so he made sure that he could move very rapidly in order to get away from uh, Laban so he takes a priority makes sure his family's taken care of and they began to leave now the the negative side of this is in this in this uh, episode is that while he's doing this Rachel unbeknownst to Uh, Jacob goes in and steals uh, the teraphim, which is not part of his plan. He's handling everything uh, correctly. And what we see illustrated here is that in the midst of this problem, in the midst of this adversity and trying to deal with with the problem with with Jacob and with Laban, Jacob has a divine mandate, and that divine mandate is to get back home to the land. Now, how he's supposed to execute that is left up to him. God doesn't tell him how to do it, much the same way that many of the mandates in Scripture that are for us in the church age are given as general principles, but the specifics are left up to us. And as we've gone through our study in the last several months on on, uh, the wisdom principle of Scripture and divine guidance, God expects us, as the Holy Spirit has taught us, and we have a a reservoir of doctrine in our soul, is to take that doctrine and to apply it in a wise way, in a skillful way. And what we see in this episode is that Jacob is using wisdom in the process. There are some commentators who look at this and say, well, see, Jacob's really a coward. He's stealing away in the dead of night. He doesn't want to honestly face up to Laban and show his courage and take a stand from God, so he's just going to wait till Laban's out of the picture and he sneaks away at night. No, he's honest. He has a realistic picture of the situation. He knows what his father-in-law and his brother-in-laws are like, his brothers-in-law are like, and so he is going to deal with the situation in a realistic manner. There's nothing wrong in the way he leaves. There's nothing implied in the text that's wrong. But there is a contrast made, a subtle contrast made, between his departure and what what Rachel is doing. Jacob is clearly obedient to the divine command. The phrase there, then, Jacob rose, is the counterpart to a phrase we see back in Genesis 31:13, where God appeared to him in verse 13 and said, I am the God of Bethel, reminding him of the promise of Genesis 28:15. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and where you made a vow to me. Now arise. That's the command. God tells him to arise. And in verse 17, we see the counterpart response. Then Jacob arose. It's the same verb, and we see that he is being obedient to God. He makes an a wise decision regarding the timing and the way in which he is leaving. He shows uh, wisdom. He shows discernment. He shows planning and foresight. That's all part of it. He's, he, to, to leave the way he left demanded that he plan it all out. Remember, he's leaving with two wives. He's got two concubines. He's got 13 children. He has untold number, uh, a, a wealth of sheep, and goats, and camels as well, and he has to move all of these people 400 miles in as rapid a fashion as he can in order to put as much distance between him and what he expects will be the pursuit of Laban. He knows perfectly well 
what Laban's character is. He po- had pointed out to Rachel and Leah back in verse 7, and we'll point out again in his confrontation with Laban, that Laban had deceived him and changed his wages ten times. He knows that he's dealing with somebody who can't be trusted, who will use every thing in the book that he can come up with in order to try to get the upper hand on Jacob. So he plans things out, and he leaves when it's at his most advantageous. We're told in verse 18, he carried away all his livestock and all his possessions with which he had gained, and this was quite a bit, his acquired livestock which he had gained in Padan Aram, and to go to his father Isaac in the land of Canaan. So he picked his time, verse 19. Then Laban had gone to shear his sheep, And Rachel had stolen his household idols that were her father's. So while Laban's away to shear the sheep, this was a major operation that took place uh, every year in the spring. And while he's away, three or four day travel, so it's going to take him a while to hear about what's going on that that Jacob and the family have left. And it will take him time to gather uh, anybody together and to pursue. So he's chosen his time well. But in the process, we see another principle, and that is that the way in which the, the command of God is applied. There's nothing wrong with Jacob's leadership in this situation or the way in which he leads. We have to remember the principle that a right thing done in a wrong way is wrong. Now, he does a right thing leaving in a right way. He exercises wisdom, he shows planning, he shows foresight, he takes care of his family, puts his family first, and that's always important whenever we are doing what God wants us to do in life, that we make sure we do it without violating other priorities that God gives us in life. So if we have a family, then we have family responsibilities, and if we feel like God wants us or believe God wants us to do something, then we have to uh, balance those together. Now, Rachel, on the other hand, is going to do a right thing in a wrong way. She is going to leave. She's following the leadership of her husband. But without his permission and without discussion, she decides she's going to get one last little jab in to dear old father Laban. And so she goes back in and steals the teraphim, the household idols. Now, what exactly were teraphim? Well, the word teraphim is a broad word. It generally refers to... Idols. We have a couple of passages that use this term. First uh, Samuel 19:13. We're told in an episode with Michal, who is the daughter of Saul, and at this point the wife of David, that as she, that as Dave, as uh, excuse me, as Saul is seeking to uh, kill David and is now breathing threats of uh, against David and seeking to have him arrested and executed. Uh, Michelle, in one of her early acts of loyalty toward, and rare acts of loyalty toward David, took, uh, told David to get out the back window and escape, and in order to set up a ruse, make it look as if David's still in the house and in the bed, she took the household idol. So this is David and Michelle, and they've got a household idol. So this was just sort of a standard thing that was in the house. And she lays it on the bed, and put a quilt of goat's hair at its head and covered it with clothes to make it look like this is David. So we see the size of this teraphim is about the size of a human torso. So it's pretty good size. But the teraphim that uh, Rachel has are small enough to hide in her the saddlebags of her camel so that it's not 
uh, easily noticed, and nobody would think that that's where they were. So they could be of various various sizes. They were used in uh, the worship of, of idolatry. They were prohibited and removed from the land in Second Kings twenty three twenty four under the reign of the good king Josiah, who removed the mediums and the spiritists and all the soothsayers and tarot card readers and uh, necromancers from the land, including the teraphim and the idols. So this is just some of the passages in the Old Testament that talk about uh, the teraphim, that is, the household idols. We're not really sure. Scholars aren't sure as to what their role was. Some think they had something to do with uh, inheritance, and that seems to be part of the background here possibly that if uh, whoever possessed the household idols had a claim on the inheritance from the father. But it doesn't make sense here because Rachel and Leah are leaving. They're never going to come back again. They're never going to be back in uh, Padan Aram. They're not going to come back and try to make a claim on Laban's uh, possessions or his inheritance. So that doesn't make, make sense. What does make sense in the passage is that they're very important to Laban. I mean, he he thinks that this is where the blessing comes from for him and that he is uh, devoted to these idols. And if he doesn't have his good luck charm, his rabbit's foot, whatever it is, then he's not going to receive much blessing. shows that he's not thinking much because he hasn't had a whole lot of blessing recently anyway because the God of Jacob has transferred all of his property to Jacob. And his teraphim have not... Uh, worked out very well, and that's the just you got to catch the the humor that underlies this whole episode here. The Holy Spirit has a great sense of humor, and there is a real slap in the face here towards this the the uh, idols that the God of Jacob is superior to the gods of anybody, and the gods of Jacob are going to bless him. The God of Jacob is going to bless him and prosper him, whereas the false gods of the pagans don't really provide don't really provide anything. So Rachel steals them because she's, as it were, going to steal the source of her father's blessing. And she knows that as long as she's got those idols and he doesn't have them anymore, he will be extremely distraught and unhappy. So she's just taking a little vindictive swipe at her father in order to get back at him for all the mischief and misery that he's brought into their life over the past 20 years or more. And then we're told in verse 20, Jacob stole away, and that literally means he just left in the dead of night, unknown to Laban, and he didn't tell him he was going to flee, and then there's a repetition of the word flee here, two or three times, to flee in verse 20, and he fled in verse 21, which is the same word used to describe his flight from the land uh, earlier when Esau was breathing threats against him. Another thing that we ought to think about in terms of our mindset while we read this, think of yourself as a Jew, and you're in the conquest generation. Your folks have all died off because they were part of the uh, carnal uh, generation, the Exodus generation that left Egypt, and you are sitting on the plains of Moab, Moab getting ready to go into the land under the leadership of Joshua because Moses has just died or is about to die. And as you're reading this, you're being, you would be reminded of the fact that for several generations, the Jews have been out of the land just as Jacob was out of the land. 
And just as God was faithful to Jacob and protected him and prospered him while he was out of the land, God has been faithful to the Jews while they were out of the land in Egypt. He has protected them and he has prospered them even though they were in uh, slavery in Egypt. And now God has brought them back to the land. So the return of Jacob to the land is a, a reminder of the fact that God has also protected them. It is a continuous reminder that God is the one who protects us and watches over us. Now we're told in verse 21 that he fled with all that he had. So he has quite an entourage in all of his possessions. He arose and crossed the river, that is the river Euphrates, and headed toward the mountains of Gilead, 400 miles, and he's going to make exceptionally good time in the process. Then starting in verse 22, starting in verse 22, we're going to see the family conflict come to a head, and we're going to see how the conflict resolves itself. Now, when you get to this and you read it, it's not a very satisfactory resolution, and that's the reality that we often see in Scripture. Frequently, in conflicts that we experience in life, even with believers, there's not a satisfactory resolution because the person that we're in conflict with is in carnality. They're operating on arrogance. They're operating on on selfish, self-centered motivation. They're operating on anger, bitterness, or whatever the cause may be. And just like Jacob and Laban, we may be in the right, they're in the wrong, they're going to say everything they can to justify their position and belittle us and make it look like we're in the wrong. And sometimes we just have to come to a peaceable accord and there will never be real resolution, not because of, and we need to make sure that it's not because of anything in our mental attitude, but that it is always the result of their, the other person's failure. So we see the setting of the confrontation in verses 22 through 25 as uh, Laban catches up with Jacob down in the region of Gilead. Verse 22 we read, And Laban was told on the third day that Jacob had fled. So three days goes by before a messenger gets to him to tell him what had, what had transpired, and then he has to organize his pursuit. So he took his brethren with him and pursued him for seven days' journey. So that uh, is ten days has transpired between the time they left and the time that Laban finally catches up with him. They've gone about 400 miles, so if those numbers are basically approximations, then Jacob was making good time. With all the flocks and herds, he's moving about 30 miles a day, which is really good time. Usually under those conditions, you only made it uh, 10 or 15 miles a day. In the Old West, when the wagon trains were moving moving west, they usually only made about 10 to 15 miles a day. So Jacob was clearly making good time, and he's trying to put as much distance as he could, could between him and his kinsmen, because he knows what manner of people they are. Verse 23, Laban gathers up his brethren with him, that's all his kinsmen, and pursues him, finally overtakes him, verse 24. But just before he gets there, we see the intervention of God. Now, God had not intervened up to this point. He had operated in a covert manner in blessing Jacob 
And in transferring the ownership of most of the sheep and goats from Laban to Jacob, but not in an overt manner. The only time in this whole episode from chapter 28 on that we see God appear to anybody is once he appeared to Jacob on his way out of the land at Bethel where he renews the covenant with uh, the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob, promises him to take care of him while he's out of the land and to bring him back to the land. And then he appeared to Jacob 20 years later in uh, 31.13 to remind him of that promise and say it's time to go home. So God has not appeared to anyone else. There's been no overt intervention. But as Laban in his attempt, now he is breathing fire. And if you read the, the tone and the tenor of his verbal attack, his verbal assault on, on uh, Jacob... In the coming verses, from verse 26 on, it becomes clear once we know, have our understanding of Laban's, uh, Laban's character and background, that he very well may have intended, or he very well intended to do bodily harm to Jacob and to take back everything that was his. But God appeared to him to stop him. And he says, be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. Now, in that, Jacob it clearly, I mean, Laban clearly violated that because he's falsely accusing Jacob of having stolen everything. But he is restrained because God has appeared to him, and he's restrained from doing him any bodily harm. Verse 25, Laban overtook Jacob. Jacob had pitched his tent in the mountains, and Laban with his brethren pitched their tents in the mountains of Gilead. So this is the setting for the situation. God has been protecting Jacob all through this. And what we see again and again throughout the scriptures is that God is the one who protects his people. And this is just one more example of that. God was the protector of Jacob specifically because Jacob is the uh, Recipient of the Abrahamic covenant in his generation, and God had promised Abraham that he would provide worldwide blessing through his seed, and then God had renewed that promise to Jacob specifically at Bethel in 28.15, where he said, Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have spoken to you. So we have a specific promise of God. And just as Jacob handles all of this testing now through his trust in that promise, just as we do with the faith rest drill, we recognize that God is the one who is always our protection. This is one of the great metaphors that we see throughout the Psalms is that God is our shield, our fortress, our bulwark, our protection. And these are just some of the promises that we should uh, commit to memory for those tough times in life. Uh, Genesis 15.1 shows that this was a promise that was near and dear to the patriarchs. God had promised Abram, I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. God is the one who provides that protection. He's a shield. Uh, so many of these metaphors are repeated again and again in the Psalms. Here are just a few of those promises. Psalm 3.3, But you, O Lord... Or a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts 
my head, even in the midst of despondency, despair, when everything seems to be going wrong, David says in the psalm, You are the one who protects me. You are my rock and my fortress, Psalm 18.2. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. That would be an interesting study is to go through all of the, take a look at all these metaphors for protection. Rock, fortress, deliverer, stronghold, shield that are used in the Psalms and trace out all of those different promises. Here David says, the Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. My God, my rock, he repeats again, in whom I take refuge, my shield, and the horn of my salvation. Horn means power, the power of my salvation, my stronghold. Again, in Psalm 1830, as for God, his way is blameless. The word of the Lord is tried or tested. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Psalm 28.7, again, we have this same idea. The Lord is my strength and my shield. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. Therefore, conclusion. See, here we have doctrinal principle in the first part of the verse. The Lord is my strength and my shield. Then we have the volitional response of the faith rest drill. My heart trusts in him, and I am helped. And then we have a doctrinal conclusion. Therefore, my heart exalts joy, inner happiness. My heart exalts, and with my song I shall thank him. Psalm 33, verse 20, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Uh, Psalm 35, verse 2, Take hold of buckler and shield and rise up for my help. This refers to the Lord. Psalm 91, 4, He will cover you with his pinions. This is a, a zoomorphism. You know what a zoomorphism is? An anthropomorphism is when the uh, forms of human forms like hands or eyes are attributed to God. He doesn't actually possess them, but but we it's a figure of speech where the uh, forms of a human body are attributed to God in order to communicate something about his his plans and his purposes. A zoomorphism is when uh, forms of animals like wings. We're covered by the wings of God. He doesn't actually possess wings, but, but that is the picture that the psalmist is using in order to communicate uh, protection. So here, he will cover you with his pinions, and under his wings you may seek refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a bulwark. That God is always faithful in every trial and every test that we encounter. And that is what Jacob has been learning. And as I pointed out in the introduction, that is the center of this whole piece. Because again and again, Jacob comes back to this principle that God is the one who blessed him, prospered him. God is the one who provided his wealth. He didn't steal it from, from Laban. He didn't take it from Laban. God provided it in a just and fair manner. He honestly acquired it. And because of God's blessing in his life, he is now able to return uh, to the land. Now, when Laban catches up with him in verse 26, he wrongfully accuses Jacob. 
Now, this may not have ever happened to you where you've been falsely accused of something in a serious situation, but this is a serious situation. Remember, Jacob just has his, his two wives and two concubines, and he's got 13 kids with him. The youngest kid is about four or five, and the oldest kid is only about 13. He probably has some servants and slaves with him, but not too many to help with the process. And here he is basically surrounded by Laban, and all of uh, his kin- Laban's kinsmen, and he's got a gang with him to to stop uh, to stop Jacob. And he, Laban immediately lays into him. He said to Jacob, "What have you done that you have stolen?" There's that word again. It's about the fourth time we've seen it now. That you have stolen away, unknown to me, and carried away my daughters like captives taken with the sword. He accuses. Jacob of sneaking away in the middle of the night, stealing all of his possessions, and kidnapping his daughters, all of which is just completely fraudulent. He falsely accuses him of taking everything. So Laban is not someone who is rational or honest. He's only in it to keep what he has. Verse 27, he says, Why did you flee away secretly and steal away from me and not tell me? Well, it's because you're a dishonest cheat, and uh, I wasn't going to trust myself to you. See, that's the wisdom that doctrine gave to Jacob. Why did you flee away secretly, Laban accuses him, and steal away and not tell me? For I might have sent you away with joy and songs, with timbrel and harp. Now, do you believe Laban? Uh, Jacob doesn't believe him either, just like when he promised him that he could marry Rachel after seven years of labor, and in the middle of the night there was a switch, and the next morning when he got up to marry uh, Rachel, he found out that he was marrying Leah instead. So he's not very honest, and he just continues to misrepresent himself. The same verbiage is used back in 2925. Uh, as a matter of fact, this is uh, uh, how... The Holy Spirit ties these things together for us that Laban in his accusation says, uh, Why did you flee away secretly? And what have you, uh, what, uh, verse 26, excuse me, of chapter 31, what have you done that you've stolen away unknown to me? And why did you flee secretly? And back in 29 uh, 25, when Jacob had the, uh, the big switch took place, he accused Laban using the same vocabulary. What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I have served you? Why then have you deceived me? So in chapter 29, Laban deceived Jacob, and now, Jacob, uh, now Laban is accusing Jacob of doing the same thing when in fact Jacob is uh, completely guilt-free. He has done everything with integrity. Now, this finally gives Jacob the opportunity to answer these false charges. And he does so uh, first of all by showing his complete integrity. See, in Laban's, Laban's charge, he also charges him with stealing the teraphim. I don't have a slide on those verses. And Laban is threatened in verse 29. He says, It's my power to do you harm, but the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, Be careful that you speak to Jacob neither good nor bad. And now you have surely gone 
Uh, now you're surely gone because you greatly long for your father's house, but why did you steal my gods? So he accuses him of stealing teraphim in verse 30. And Jacob answers, and he says, well, because I was afraid, because you're dishonest. And that I was afraid that you would say that, well, you'll, take a, you'll kidnap my daughters just like you've just done. So I used a little wisdom. But then Jacob, in his integrity, says, I didn't take your gods. Search everybody. If you find them, then you can deal with them. He says in verse 32, with whomever you find your gods, do not let him live. You can take their life. I didn't take him. He thinks he's completely innocent. And so here we see how God protects Rachel and the seed, even though they're wrong. And that's that's the grace of God. Many times we're wrong, we're in carnality, and God doesn't lower the boom on us, which he is totally justified in doing, but because his plans and purposes are greater than our carnality or our sin... He deals with us in grace, and so he did that. And we have this humorous episode where Laban goes into the tent, and to Leah's tent, and into the two maids' tents, and he is looking for them, and he did, does not find them. Three times the text emphasizes that he can't find them. And he goes in, and he's looking for them, and the Hebrew word is he's groping for them. It's the same word used when Isaac is kind of groping around Jacob, trying to see if he's... He's really Esau. He's like a blind man looking for something. And the suggestion is that God makes it impossible. And he comes out, and he comes. the only thing he hasn't searched is Rachel's uh, saddlebags. And uh, Rachel has very craftily hidden them in her, in her saddlebags and has seated herself on them. And she says in verse 35, Let it not displease my Lord that I can't get up, get off my camel, uh, for the manner of women is with me. So she lies about it, but notice how God is sort of hands off in this whole thing. He just lets it work itself out. There's no justification of her. But what we're seeing is this contrast between Jacob and his uprightness. You know, all along we've seen his, that he's been doing like Rachel. He's the crafty one. He's manipulative. Now we see Rachel's doing it in contrast to Jacob. So it's the Holy Spirit emphasizes how uh, Jacob has matured uh, during this time and that he is totally without guile in this situation. And, of course, at this point, Laban isn't going to ask her to get off the camel. He's not going to disturb her, so he stops his search. And now Jacob, in in true righteous indignation, finally lets all that pent-up anger and resentment of the way he's been maltreated over the years just come forth. And he sets forth his legal case against Laban. Now this is a really a legal situation. The vocabulary is is it's not a formal courtroom, but then they didn't have formal courtrooms like at that time like we do. Genesis 31:36 we read then Jacob was angry in some versions say he confronted or he, uh, Laban or he verse 36 he uh, rebuked Laban. The Hebrew word there is the word reeve. Uh, R-I-B, the soft B pronounced like a V, that is a word that is used in legal context to indicate bringing a lawsuit against somebody. 
And we have to recognize this whole context is, is, is legal. It ends with a contract that is signed between Laban and Jacob, and it's a legal reconciliation even though there's not a real reconciliation between the two of them. So he is angry and he legally challenges Laban. Now he's angry and often this is used as a as a figure of speech in scripture. For example, the wrath of God. It's not really he's not getting emotional here. He's not uh just getting uh, hacked off and angry and just letting Laban have it. He ha- he has a very rational organized case that he presents against Laban. So he's not irrationally angry at this point. But he is, uh, his, his sense of justice has been violated and he presents a logical case against Laban. He answers and says to Laban, what, what's my trespass? What's my sin? Why is it that you've hotly pursued me? Identify your charge against me. So the very first thing that he does is, after Laban has brought this charge against, against him, is to say, just spell it out, identify it, produce any evidence of my malfeasance, produce any evidence of my wrongdoing. Why are you here? The second thing that he does is in verse 37, is he says, as he reviews the evidence, you searched all the things which are part of my household things. You haven't found your your teraphim anywhere. Uh, if you have said it here before brethren, before my brethren and your brethren, that they may judge between us both. So he calls upon everybody there to act as a jury. He, Laban can't produce any evidence. It's just false charges. And then he goes on to spell it out and how he has been maltreated and abused by Laban for the last 20 years. He points out in verse 38 that for 28, I mean for 20 years, he has been a faithful servant, even though Laban has been an unfaithful master. He points out that in those 20 years, that when he, that during those 20 years, Laban was blessed because of his presence. During all that time, whenever the ewes and the female goats gave birth, none miscarried for 20 years. This is a sign of God's blessing those who were associated with Jacob, even though Laban did not deserve it. Then he goes on to point out that he did not benefit from uh, the flocks. He says, uh, I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. So Jacob during that time didn't personally benefit from anything that, that was owned by Laban. Then in verse uh, 39, he points out that he bore all the losses himself. He could have charged them back to Laban, but he bore the losses himself. He said, what, that which was torn by beasts, I did not bring it to you. I bore the loss of it. You required it from my hand, which indicates that you were a harsh taskmaster. You should have accepted responsibility for the loss, but the fact that you charged it against me again shows uh, your... Uh, mistreatment of me and your dishonesty. Furthermore, he points out that it was Jacob who was faithful, stayed with the flocks and herds through the heat of the summer, through the snow and the ice of winter, that whether he had to stay up all night, he, he did his job. He was faithful. He had a good work ethic. He took care of everything. He was honest and upright in the way he dealt with Laban, 
But Laban mistreated him throughout this time. Ten times he changed his wages. Uh, furthermore, not to mention the way he switched, uh, switched daughters on him. And then the final verse, in verse 42, we see the foundational principle once again. He said, Unless the God of my father... The God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. We'll talk about that word in just a minute. Unless the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had been with me, God's faithfulness is the whole point. You were unfaithful. You mistreated me. And in the midst of a situation where I'm having to deal with rotten in-laws and being uh, unjustly treated, what sustained me through these 20 years is the faithfulness of God, and that's what sustains us. He says, If it hadn't been for the faithfulness of God, that He was with me, surely now you would have sent me away empty handed. God has seen my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. It's the Supreme Court of Heaven ultimately that justifies us. It's not up to us to justify ourselves. Now, in this passage, He refers to God by an unusual name. He calls Him the fear of Isaac. And this is the Hebrew word pachad, which has more to do with, with dread or terror. And it indicates that God strikes terror in the hearts of those who are opposed to his plan. It is what is known as a metonymy. This is a figure of speech where you substitute the effect for the cause. So what he is saying is that the effect, that is fear is substituted for the cause, God. Instead of saying the God of Isaac, it's the fear of Isaac. Fear is what is brought into the hearts of those who are in opposition to God's plan for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The principle that we see here for application is that when we are carrying out God's will in the church age, in any time, that means to live our life with divine priorities, learning the Word. It doesn't mean that there won't be adversity in our life. It doesn't mean that there won't be uh, difficulties and opposition. But what it does mean is God is always going to be faithful to us, and He will always provide what we need to accomplish His plan for our life. He may not provide everything that we think we ought to have, but He will always provide what we need. This was a principle that was at the very core of the ministry of George Mueller of Bristol, England, back about 150 years ago in the middle of the 19th century, he had, a, he had an orphanage, and his governing principle for his ministry is God will always provide what is necessary to accomplish his will. God's will done God's way will never suffer for God's resources. And that is a key principle for anything in life. When we're doing what the Lord wants us to do, then He is always going to provide the means to do it. And if the means aren't there, then God is not in it. Now we come to Laban's reply in verse 43. Laban's reply is disingenuous at best. He doesn't buy it. There's no genuine reconciliation. In verse 43 says to Jacob, These daughters are my daughters. These children are my children. They've been married for uh, 14 years, but they're mine. You can't have them. These, and this flock is my flock. All that you see is mine. But what can I do about it? 
This, what can I do this day to these my daughters or to their children whom they are born? See, he, he, there's no genuine reconciliation. And sometimes that happens in our lives with unbelievers and, sadly, even with believers, that there's no real reconciliation. Why? Because someone is operating in carnality. And this can happen in a marriage. It can happen in a business partnership. It can happen at work. It can happen in churches. That's why you have church splits. There, sometimes both people are operating in carnality or both groups are operating in carnality or one group is operating in carnality. And it is particularly a problem among believers. John thirteen thirty four, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Now, this love for one another isn't simply the absence of mental attitude sins. For some reason, people got the idea that impersonal love or unconditional love means that you just don't have mental attitude sins. Jesus says that we're to love one another as I have loved you. Now, was Jesus' love for us just an absence of uh, mental attitude sins? No, it was something that was positive and rich in that he gave himself as a substitute for us in that while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. That's the example of what uh, it means to love your brothers as Christ loved us. John thirteen thirty five. This is the evidence to the world around us and to the angels that we are students of the Word of God if we have love for one another. And when that breaks down, it's for one reason, just simple carnality. Whenever you have believers who won't get along, won't reconcile, then it's always over carnality somewhere lurking in the woodpile. And that's what goes on here. Laban wants to make it look like everything's okay, but nobody buys it. It's superficial. He goes through this legal enactment, but that's all it is, is a legal, superficial reconciliation with no uh, no reality. So they establish a contract between each other, and as a sign of this contract of peace, they uh, they build a stone cairn, and it's called uh, in Aramaic, verse 47, Jigar Sahadutha. But in Hebrew, it's called Galid. Now, both of those terms mean the same thing, and that is just a heap of stones. It's uh, called also called Mizpah, which means a tower in verse 49, and it's a watchtower because the, it is a sign that they've entered into this contract before God, and God is going to watch over and hold them each accountable for the provisions of this contract that they are going to uh, not maltreat or mistreat one another anymore. So Laban says in verse 48, This heap is a witness between you and me this day. He continues in verse 50, If you afflict my daughters or if you take other wives besides my daughters, although no man is with us, see, God is a witness between you and me. So this just falls flat coming out of the mouth of Laban, who has been mistreating and abusing his daughters for all these years. That's probably why they were so glad to get out of out of Padan Aram and head, head away with, with Jacob. They were t- tired of the way their father had mistreated them. And he even goes so far as to give it a cloak of religious sincerity in verse 53. I just hate it when people start 
talking. When, when, don't you hate that when you're a believer and all of a sudden somebody says, well, God bless you, and you just want to smack them because you, you know that they're not at all interested in the truth or doctrine. They're just quoting uh, some sort of religious saying because they think it will mean something to you. But he says something interesting in verse 53. He says, The God of Abraham, the God of Nahor, and the God of their father judge between us. Now, see, there's a passage over in Joshua 24:27 that talks about the fact that the God of, of Abraham's father, that Abraham's ancestors worshipped the uh, pantheon, the, the polytheistic gods of Babylon. And so every time you study... Uh, the life of Abraham, they always go to that, that he comes out of this purely pagan context. And everybody ignores this particular verse, which suggests that Nahor and their family clearly understood who the who El Elyon, that is the, the God that is mentioned by Melchizedek, they clearly understand who this God is. Now, they may have gotten it all mixed up and and with various syncretism with the pagan religion, but they understood something about who the true God is. So Abraham isn't coming to salvation in a complete vacuum. There is still evidence from the Noahic tradition in Ur the Chaldees that El Elyon is the true God, and so there's still a gospel witness even in Ur of the Chaldees, when Abraham is a young man. He doesn't get saved in Genesis chapter 12. That's when God calls him to a new role in history. But he's already saved, and he heard the gospel somewhere. God just didn't zap him, which is what some people think, that God just uh, elected him to salvation and regenerated him in a vacuum. No, there was a historical context where the gospel was still available. And this statement by Laban alludes to that. Then the the contract is sealed through a sacrifice in verse 54, and they eat a meal together. This is typical of a contract, that a contract is sealed and signified by a fellowship meal in reconciliation. What does that remind you of? At the Lord's table, this is a meal. It is a sign of, this is my blood, which is... The, which is given for you. This blood is a new covenant of my blood. The new covenant is a new contract that is established on the cross. And then there is a fellowship meal, and that's what communion is. The concept of communion, that word indicates fellowship, indicating fellowship that we now have after salvation because of what Christ did on the cross. So this goes back to a very ancient tradition that contracts were sealed through fellowship meals. And so early in the morning, this episode closes out, early in the morning Laban arose, kissed his sons and daughters and blessed them, and then he departed and returned to his place, never to see them again. This is the end of the conflict, but there's been a resolution, but not a reconciliation, because Laban hasn't recognized any of his faults, errors, he hasn't changed any of his self-centered cheating ways, but he has been forced to a legal position where they're going to agree not to uh, cheat each other anymore, and then he goes back home. What has sustained Isaac through this is the faithfulness of God, and that's the same thing that sustains us. 
through whatever the test is, whatever the trial is, we have to go back to the faithfulness of God, to His Word, to His promises, and cling to that no matter what happens. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, Father, thank You for this opportunity to study Your Word, to be reminded of Your faithfulness, knowing that You are always true to Your Word. And pray that You would remind us of these things, help us to uh, lean on this in times of testing. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.